Luke 2, title of the sermon, Don't Lose Focus, Don't Lose Your Joy. Last week we considered together one of the most important days in the history of the world. So important, in fact, that even our calendar revolves around this event, that being the birth of Jesus Christ. It initiated the age of grace, the age of hope, a joy unlike the world had ever seen. Now, we consider already, uh, we, even prior to our family series, which kind of has cut our, our beginnings in Luke uh, a little bit, but we, we considered the nature of Christ's coming and how it was described by Zechariah as the divine daybreak, the day spring from on high, referencing Malachi chapter 4, where he's called the Messiah, is called the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N of Righteousness, that would come with healing in his wings to pull the world out of the spiritual darkness of the age and bring it into the light of, of Christ. There are times in history which are very optimistic, whether that be optimistic for physical reasons or spiritual reasons, oftentimes they go together, oftentimes a spiritual revival precedes uh, a cultural revival, a cultural renaissance. There are times when the spirit of the age and the outlook for the future is bright and is full of hope. Uh, we do not live in one of those times. Perhaps many of you can remember um, days where it was still that way, some of the older folks in the room. Uh, but, but this is not that age. Uh, just considering what happened this past week in, in Dallas and, and uh, the, the cultural and political uh, state of our nation, um, the... the state of the coming election, uh, the state of the world right now. I was at a conference this last week and they had a speaker uh, who is a um, minister in Syria. He was, he's Syrian. He is a Syrian um, man and he is a pastor in Syria. And uh, it was very difficult to listen to him. And to hear of people that were in their church, a Bible-believing church, Baptistic in doctrine. Uh, you know, oftentimes you hear about these things happening and, and uh, they're, they're um, people, and you might even wonder, well, you know, where, where do they even have the gospel in some of these churches? But, but, but a man who, who is very clear on the gospel, these, these people are, are, are over there. They have the gospel. They love the Lord. They love Jesus Christ. And, and they are. They're being beheaded uh, for his name. They are uh, losing their families, losing their homes, losing their jobs. And it was very difficult to listen to. And as we consider this age in which we live, Times of uncertainty, times of wickedness, times of danger, times where we feel like the best days are behind us as far as culture is concerned. Uh, all that is left is the former remnants of, of a glory which is all but gone. The church is in a bad way, culture is in a bad way, society is in a bad way. And a while back, I preached a message that sought to remind us that God is still in control, as we considered. That was from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He's still on the throne. I'd like us to consider something else this morning that's related. Offer you a bit of a perspective, perhaps. The days following Jesus' birth were not days of great fanfare. He didn't get parades in the streets. We mentioned last week the humility of his birth. It was not a large coronation for him as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Glory. But though those days were not notorious, they, they were yet significant. And we pick up our account today in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And the scriptures tell us when Eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child. 
His name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. There are several cultural things going on here. Uh, I'm not really going to park on them this morning. I'm going to preach another message next week, which will be a little more technical, give you some, some information on some of these cultural things. Um, but for today, it's sufficient for us to know that the children in Israel and in the Hebrew culture were circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the command of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, and Jesus was circumcised on that day. He was given his name, which was so named of, of the angel, as we see here. We then continue in verses 22 and 24, and the scriptures say this, And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem, that would be Jesus, to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, there were many ceremonial expectations. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. In Leviticus chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, we see the days are prescribed for a male and a female for purification. If the woman has a boy, there's 40 days of purification. If the woman has a girl, there's 80 days of purification. I'll tell you why next week. Jesus was brought to the temple after that 40 days of uncleanness, 40 days of purification of Mary in order to be dedicated. And this was a command given in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. So if you, if you catch the trend here, it's all right there in the beginning of Leviticus chapter 12. Uh, after the birth every uh, of every child, a parent was to bring that child to the temple and to offer a burnt offering as the culmination of this time of purification. And the prescribed offering, according to Leviticus 12, verse 8, was a lamb. However, uh, because there were some that could not bring a lamb, and, and there would be various reasons, one of the most foremost reasons being because a person can't afford a lamb, they would bring two pigeons or two turtle doves and offer them instead. By the fact that we see that being the offering for Jesus, we would assume or understand Jesus' parents to be um, fairly limited in means poor. All of this was done in accordance with the law, revealing that Jesus came in every aspect of his birth and his life as a Jew, under the law, submitted to the law. The scriptures tell us that, that he came as a man, but he came as a Jew. He came under the law to redeem them that were under the law and to redeem all mankind from the curse of sin. And it is this joy, this redemption, which would not take place for another uh, 32, 33 years that we consider this morning as our focus turns to another man, another player that comes into the temple on this day that they're dedicating Jesus, a man named Simeon. And the scriptures tell us in verses 25 and 26, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So introduced to this man named Simeon, and a man who is described as being just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation is, is oftentimes translated comfort in the scriptures, and without question it is a messianic link. It is without question linked to a prophetic promise. And that prophetic promise is found in Isaiah chapter 40. I'll have it up on the screen. Feel free to turn to it. We'll be there for a few moments. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, we see these words. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. This is without question what Simeon was thinking. This is without question where that waiting for the consolation of Israel phrase came from. He, at some point in his life, read Isaiah 40, knew of the consolation, and was just and devoutly waiting for that consolation to come, for that comfort to come. How do we know that Isaiah 40 is speaking of Messiah? Let's continue reading. Speak, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, 
for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. When you read this passage, we, we recognize what's going on here. First, it announces the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. And then it announces that he's making this path straight for God, that the crooked would be made straight, that the rough would be made plain, that the glory of the Lord would be revealed. This is Messiah. This is the promise. This is what Simeon, this is what he had in his mind. This is what he had in his heart. This is what he was praying unto. This is what he was waiting for. He was waiting, the text tells us, for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. And within this context, Simeon had been given a wonderful blessing. It had been revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. That word Christ we know means Messiah. Until he had seen the Messiah. He knew that he would not die until the day that he, at least until the day he laid eyes upon the Messiah. So we continue reading in verses 27, and we'll read through verse 32. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Simeon is led into the temple by the Spirit of God, and we know he's filled with the Holy Spirit here. And as he sees this young child, Jesus, the Spirit of God confirms to Simeon that this young child, 40 days old, is Messiah. So he takes the child up in his arms and he, de he declares him to be who he is. The salvation of God prepared for all people. And, and he brings it from two different perspectives. He says, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Bringing light to those that are in darkness and bringing glory to those that wait for him. To, to, to his people, to those that have the word of God already. Now, as Simeon is full of the Holy Ghost, we regard his reword, as, as his words as being uh, the truth of God. Obviously, the Word of God is inspired by God, and so this is uh, God's message, a manifestation of the Spirit of Truth, and in agreement with the announcement of the angel Gabriel to the shepherds, the ministry of Messiah, according to Simeon, would bring hope and would bring gladness to all people, would reach to the very farthest corners of the earth. It prepared before the face of all people, that all people would be, would be confronted with this light, with this salvation, with this glory. And I urge you with this point, thinking about that, I urge you to tuck that in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it. But we'll continue in the text. The scriptures tell us in verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. That word literally means to wonder, to admire. They they marveled at these things concerning their son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, the message was marvelous, uh, not just in what their son would do, but in the blessing which their son would bestow upon the world. We talked last week about Mary as the shepherds came and, and rejoiced over this Messiah, having seen an angel that told them to come. And as we consider that circumstance, the Bible says that she took these things and she kept them in her heart. She perhaps realized that this son that was born was not just her son, but his much greater purpose, the Son of God. She's going to learn more about her son in just a few moments as we continue reading in verses 33 and 34. Simeon still has the boy and says, And, and Simeon blessed them, and blessed Joseph and Mary, and said unto Mary his mother. So he, now he's speaking specifically just to Mary text is, is very specific there. 
Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So he blesses Mary and Joseph, which would have been a wish for God's blessing upon them. And then he looks toward Mary, and he gives this prophecy, one which is perhaps not as clear. The, the last prophecy, a light to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel, that, that's pretty clear about what Jesus is going to do. He brings salvation. This next prophecy takes a little more digging, a little more understanding. He tells Mary that the child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. That word fall literally meaning a downfall or a crash. Uh, that by means of the appearance of this Christ child, the nation was going to experience a downfall, a crash. It's kind of interesting, as Simeon would say that. But then he also says that they're going to rise again out of that fall. The appearance of Christ, he says, would be a sign, a token, which would be spoken against. That there would be an a, a indication here of something. There's no theological consensus regarding what Simeon means here. And the reason why there's no theological consensus regarding what Simeon means here is because in order to understand, in order to interpret what Simeon is saying, you have to draw in an, the entire biblical worldview that one has. And depending on how people interpret the Bible, they're going to come to some very different conclusions. We are, um, by conviction, what we would typically call a dispensational at Legacy Baptist Church. And because of our convictions, it guides our interpretive method to interpret uh, things a certain way. We believe God still has a plan for national Israel, something that many churches do not today. We believe that national Israel is now in a state, we might say, of pause, that God had a plan with Israel that is not yet finished with national Israel, and that the church is here for a time, for an age, an age of grace, an age where the Gentile world is invited to join into what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. But then there's coming a time when the church will be taken out of this world in the rapture. And then following the rapture, there will be seven years of tribulation intended for the purpose of bringing Israel back to God. That's when God will reinitiate his program with Israel. We believe that the tribulation is not for the church of Christ. It's a time of chastening for Israel, a time of judgment upon the unbelieving world. And it is within this interpretive framework that, that I present what Simeon's words mean here. So if you're ever reading in a commentary and you see something very, very different from what your pastor's telling you this morning, it's probably because they don't believe, they don't have a dispensational viewpoint of Scripture. If a person rejects that framework, then this is going to be, uh, it's going to seem very different. It's going to be interpreted very differently. And if we're going to understand Simeon's words here, we must first lay a foundation that they are spoken to Mary about Jesus specifically his ministry to the Jewish people. You notice it says here that he will be set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. So while Simeon has talked about the Gentile world and he'll, he'll be a light to lighten the Gentiles and then the glory of his people Israel, then he turns to Mary and he says specifically about Israel that he is set for the, the fall and rising again of many. It'd be much more turbulent road for Israel than it would be for the Gentiles, as signified by Christ's coming. We spoke not too long ago in one of our evening services about uh, the covenants, the five kingdom covenants, and what they mean. And so those of you that were here for that evening service are going to be a little bit familiar with what we're talking about next. But as we consider the history of the Jewish nation from the point of Jesus' arrival and onward, we, we find very little glory and blessing and joy in Israel, don't we? Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, from that point on, there was about 40 years before Rome came into Jerusalem in 70 AD, burned it to the ground, and knocked the temple down brick by brick. From that point on, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. 
until some 70 years ago in 1948 when they became a, a nation once again. Now, when one considers such terrible events in Israel, there's little question regarding what Simeon is speaking here when he says that the stage is set for the fall of many in Israel, right? There's little question about what that fall was. But he says, the fall and rising again. That word rising again is is a word to stand up. It's actually the word that is quite regularly used in the New Testament um, to speak of resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, our resurrection in the last days. Now, we know it doesn't mean a, a spiritual or a, a, um, the end times resurrection here specifically because spoke first of a fall and then of a getting up. So interpretively, we would understand them to be connected. But there is a bit of a double meaning here. In its primary context, they that would fall would get back up. But in its spiritual context, there, there is a, a spiritual resurrection that is to come. And Israel has a part to play in that to those who will accept their Messiah, to those who will be saved. And Simeon speaks of an event prophesied throughout the whole of the Old Testament that Israel would go through a period of scattering and of chastening and then a regathering and a blessing. And we find this promise most clearly taught in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And within the context of that chapter, God was reminding the nation of all of the blessings which he would give to them if they obeyed, and all of the ways that he would curse them if they disobeyed. And one of the final curses found in Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, is that they would be scattered among the Gentiles, scattered among the heathen lands, that they would find no ease in those lands, that they would serve false gods, and that they would live in sorrow of mind. And within that, that, those promises, God then tells them this through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse. Notice God says the blessing and the curse will come upon thee. It's going to come. Which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations. So the final curse was that they'd be scattered. God says it's going to happen. So he's saying here, when, when you are scattered among the nations, you will call to mind among the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of the heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecute thee, and thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep the command his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. In these ten verses, we are, we are presented a series of events. And this series of events does not bear out yet in history. Recorded history has reflected that these events are not, are not yet fulfilled. Within this series, I hope that's readable, it is blessings on this new projector. Before, that probably wouldn't have come out very well. Uh, we see a prophecy that every curse will come to pass. Verse 1 tells us that. 
the nation would be scattered across the whole of the earth. And it's important to note that this did not happen until 70 AD. There was another time where Israel was removed from the land, but they weren't scattered. They were removed as a people from Israel to Babylon, 587 BC. And certainly in the time of the Roman Empire, the nation was able to, to, to spread out among the empire. But they still had a nation. It was still there. They, they, Israel was still home. That scattering did not happen until 70 AD when Rome came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, burned it, knocked it to the ground. At that point, they were scattered throughout the whole earth. And this scattering has remained unto this day, revealing to us that, that the remainder of these prophecies are yet to come to pass. We are in the midst of them right now. And the next thing on this list would be a national desire to return unto their fathers, to return unto the God of their fathers. This is not Christ. This is the God of their fathers. This is the land of their fathers. So this is not a, a salvation tug. This is a, a returning unto their heritage tug. And we find this mounting in the Jewish community. It's been going on for some years now. A deeper desire unto the traditions of their fathers, the traditions of Moses, and then a desire, as we saw in Deuteronomy 30, to return to the land. Uh, that process began heavily in 1882. They have a name for it, in fact. They call it the Aliyah. It means ascent in Hebrew. And beginning in 1882, that was the first official aliyah where they called people, called Jews to return to the land. Of course, it became a much more viable prospect when Israel became a, a nation state again in 1948. And from that point on, people have continued to return. So now there's 8 million Jews in the land itself. And Deut Deuteronomy tells us, if we take the word of God at face value, it tells us that the hearts of the, of the nation of Israel are yet being drawn to that land and that they will continue to be drawn to that land until they're all back there. They will be regathered, and we're seeing that even today. Following this, the next part of the timetable is that the Lord will circumcise their hearts. Now, there's, there's a big gap here. We see this, this concept of, of the circumcision of the heart in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. And both times it refers to what's called the New Covenant. And that's the New Covenant that Jesus spoke of the night in which he was betrayed. This cup is the New Testament, the New Covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus was initiating the New Covenant in his blood. When Jesus died on the cross, that was, that was the covering for the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And so when the Bible talks about circumcising the hearts of the Jews, he's talking about them being saved. If you want those references, again, I preached a message just, a, just a, about eight weeks ago on the kingdom covenants in the evening service. Grab them online and you can see all those references in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I'm not going to park on them this morning. Now we know from Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 that there will be a time when God will pour out His Spirit upon the nation of Israel, a Spirit of grace, that they will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him. That is following the tribulation as we set out the timetable. That Israel will go through a time of tremendous tribulation such as they've never seen before. And when we know the kind of tribulation that the Jews have gone through in history, it's amazing to think that it's going to get worse for them, isn't it? But they will go through that time, and at the end of that, they will have been brought to the end of themselves, as sometimes God has to do, right? He has to put us through tribulation to bring us to our knees. And the nation will be brought to the end of itself, and at the end of that, them having first thought the Antichrist was their Messiah, and then realizing he is not, as he becomes that abomination of desolation that, that defiles the temple in Jerusalem, which will be rebuilt... And then Jesus Christ will descend the second time from the Mount of Olives. They will look unto him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. They will believe on him. He will rescue them. And there will be a national turning unto God. And that's essential because God cannot give the nation everything he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until they have followed him by faith. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning, right? Every blessing of God is initiated by faith. Israel cannot receive the promises that God has given to them because they have not followed him in faith.
And so there's coming that day when their hearts will be circumcised. And then at this point, having accepted their Savior, God will then be able to finish the fulfillment of His divine promises to them, to the nation. He will destroy their enemies. He will establish righteousness. He will rule over them. We will rule with Him over them and over this world. And all of this will take place within the context of the 1,000-year reign of Christ that we call the Millennial Kingdom. So that's the timetable as we understand it as dispensationalists. Now, why, why bring that in today? There's a lot of doctrine there that, that we've talked about before, we'll talk about again. Because as Simeon held this little child in his arms that day, and he spoke of the fall and the rising again of many in Israel, the biblical record bears out that the only set of events that, that this could be pointing to is this Deuteronomy 30 promise. And what will initiate that fall is that Jesus will become a sign that is spoken against. The advent of the Messiah is a sign that these things will surely come to pass. Jesus will walk through life. He will have a ministry where he declares repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would do wonderful miracles as a sign that God's plan was now progressing And as the word of God, the divine sign of God unto the people of Israel, he will be rejected and he will be killed. He will be reviled, 1 Peter tells us, all the way to death. He will be a sign spoken against. And it is this death that Simeon then considers as he, he's still talking to Mary and he says, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. Mary will feel the weight of this reviling upon her own heart. And in fact, we find that the day that Jesus was lifted up on the cross, in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, he looks at John, the disciple who he loved, and he says, Behold thy mother. And he looks at his mother and he says, Behold thy son, reminding us that Mary, his mother, was there on the day that he was killed. And no doubt, the sword pierced through her heart as she had to watch her son, the son of God, born of her before she had known a man, miraculous birth, angels rejoicing, was rejected of the nation that he came to save. Such a rejection would reveal, however, the thoughts of many hearts, that the nation was far from God and not ready to accept their Messiah. Continuing in verses 36 through 38, we find someone else was in the temple that day as well. The text tells us, And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Aser. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And... She, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So we're introduced to another woman. We'll just speak of her briefly. Her name is Anna, which is the, the Greek rendition of the Hebrew name Hannah. She was of the tribe of Asher. She was a prophetess upon which God had given this gift either to declare the word of God or to, to foretell some element of, of future events. She, the text tells us, had been married seven years from her virginity and then had been a widow for, the scriptures say, four score and four years. A score is 20 years. That means she'd been a widow for 84 years. Now, she'd been married for seven years and a widow for 84 years. The youngest a child could be married in Jewish culture was 12, which means she was at least 103 years old when this took place. At least 103. That's the, the bottom there of, of the of the scale. And she, since her, the days of her widowhood, had devoted herself, to herself entirely to fasting and prayers in the temple. That was what she did, day and night. And when Jesus came into the temple, she too testified to his identity, perhaps having heard what Simeon said, perhaps knowing it from uh, her own gifts as a prophetess, knowing that this was the Christ. And she spake of him to everybody who, who looked for redemption. Everybody who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so it was, as we, as we finalize our exposition today, and we'll apply in just a moment, 
The scriptures tell us in verses 39 and 40, when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto Galilee to their own city, Nazareth, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Having done everything that the Lord required in, at the temple in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph returned to Nazareth, the text tells us, in Galilee. And the child would spend some years of his childhood there. In two weeks, we'll talk about the fact that he does not spend all of his childhood there. And we find that throughout his childhood, his growth was not just physical, but he also grew in wisdom and grace. We'll talk about that more later as well. As I began this message this morning, I stated my goal is to give you a perspective. And the title of this sermon is, Don't Lose Focus, Don't Lose Your Joy. And with respect to that, I'm not going to give you application points this morning. Usually I try to give you some points of application. This morning I'm going to give you kind of a progression. Five, you can call them points, but it's more like progressive elements of thought leading to a conclusion. Lead you through a line of thinking that brings us to a specific end. And our first thought is this. Since the fall of man, the world has always resided in darkness. The tides of history, they ebb and they flow. Between war and peace, prosperity and lack. There's tyrants, there's righteous leaders, there's cultural health, there's cultural death, there's... Um, strength and there's weakness, there's peace and there's violence. And yet for all of this, one thing that has remained the same is that the world has always resided in darkness. The sin nature has never been removed from the world, never been removed from our hearts. Uh, that the sin nature has remained. There's always been evil since the day that Satan fell and then consequently man fell. It's been there. It, it, it remains. We live in the domain of the prince of the power of the air. Satan has authority over this world. He is active. He's busy. He's active in governments. He's active in individuals. He's active in culture. The world is Satan's domain, and, and we reside in that battleground. All around us, we see it. We see hatred. We see bigotry. We see anger, we see vengeance, we see resentment, we see bitterness and unforgiveness and deceit. When righteous men rule those things, they have to scatter and flee like cockroaches into the darkness. They, they, they reside on the fringes of culture when, when righteous men rule, but when the unrighteous rule, as the scriptures tell us, the people mourn. And that wickedness which, which is forced into the shadows, the shadows encroach. On culture and the wickedness comes with it and that that has always happened it's been an ebb and a flow like the tides of the sea but it's always there they have been and they will remain but as we consider this progression of thoughts think with me next the coming of Christ brought light into the darkness of this world right so Simeon says that a light to lighten the to, the, the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel Zechariah the day spring from on high the son of righteousness all of these fantastic beautiful words to tell us this that Jesus is the light of the world as John tells us in John chapter 1 at the birth of Jesus Christ something happened Gabriel called it good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Simeon called it the light to lighten the Gentiles. The entrance of Jesus Christ into this world shook the very foundation of the created order as the creator becomes a part of his creation. The very light of the world had penetrated the darkness which had engulfed it. Keep thinking with me. Since the fall of man, the world has always resided in darkness. The coming of Christ brought light into that darkness. Third, the people of God rejoiced in Christ's light, though the world around them remained dark. I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus Christ did not come to fanfare, to coronations. People did not line up for him. The birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed the very course of history, and yet for all of that, darkness remained. Spiritually speaking, there are only two types of people in this world, right? There are those who have accepted Christ, and there are those that have rejected Christ. Those that are dead in sins, and those that are alive in Christ. 
the Jews expected their Messiah to fundamentally change government, to fundamentally change how the civil system in their country worked. But instead, he came as a lamb to the slaughter. All those who believed on him, all those who were touched by the light that came into this world, received with joy and gladness that light. And it changed them from the inside out. Those who came to Christ were brought a inner peace, joy, and contentment. Not because the darkness of the world had been removed, but because the darkness of their hearts had been conquered. Not because the world would no longer be evil, but because there was something else within them that overcame the world. The world remained in turmoil, but the followers of Christ found peace. The world remained in anger, but the followers of Christ found forgiveness. The world remained in deceit, but the followers of Christ found truth. The world remained in sin, but the followers of Christ found righteousness. This is the joy that we read about as Simeon holds this child, as Anna proclaims to all that sought redemption the Christ. Not the joy of a man who would conquer lands and kingdoms for his glory, but the joy of a man who would conquer sin and death for the glory of God. But then he left. He, he died, and, and he rose again, and we know that. We, we gave a comprehensive gospel last week. I'm not going to give another comprehensive gospel this week, but he died, he rose again, he ascended unto the Father. We believe that with all of our hearts. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that's what it tells us. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he's there today. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's there. He's, he, he's not here, he's there. The light of the world came and then he left. He, he found followers, they believed on him, and then, and then he ascended up to his father. So where does that leave us today? Where does that leave the world today? Keep thinking with me. Since the fall of man, the world has always resided in darkness. The coming of Christ brought light into that darkness. The people of God rejoiced in that light, but the world remained in darkness. But Christ did not leave us comfortless. He, he left, but his light did not leave. He gave us His Holy Spirit to perpetuate His presence. The Scriptures tell us that God shined that light into our hearts. He did not leave us alone. In fact, by His own testimony, He left us in a better condition than when He was here. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Comforter, the Spirit of God. He said, it's good that I go away because when I go away, I'm going to give you a comfort. A comforter, a person who would not just walk alongside you and give you parables that you don't understand and then have to explain them. Who would not just walk alongside you and tell you about th this and that, give you illustrations of vines and fig trees. He would send a comforter who would literally dwell inside them, teach them from within, guide them from within. Two chapters previous to John 16, Jesus said this, and you, you should be familiar with it because it's our memory work for the month, at least one of the verses. John 14, 26 and 27, he says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And then notice what he said in the context of this Comforter. It's our verse. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as this world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
Jesus ascended unto the Father, but in his name descended the Holy Spirit of God, and through the Spirit of God, Christ left us his peace. Not a temporal, fickle peace like the world has. Not the peace that comes from a certain location or a certain set of circumstances or a certain financial security or a certain health situation. A peace that transcends that, that is beyond that, that is greater than that. A peace not rooted in the things of this world, not rooted in the things that this world can give you. And so he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. See, because we still live in a dark world. We live in a world where people will ambush police officers and shoot them in the back for a misguided ideal rooted in everything that wants to destroy this country and this culture. We live in, in a culture where our leaders will get up and they will instigate violence instead of pacify violence. We live in a culture where the name of God is blasphemed openly, where wrong is right and right is wrong. We live in that culture and it's troubling. It's very troubling. But our Savior said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as this world giveth, give I unto you. There's something deeper, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's something that transcends this world that you have. So that Christ could confidently say, knowing what the disciples would go through, he's talking to disciples who would be crucified, who would be killed in all manner of ways, stoned, who would run, flee, be cast out, be reviled. And he says, but let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. One final thought in our progression of thoughts this morning. Since the fall of man, the world has always resided in darkness. Christ brought light into the darkness. The people of God rejoiced in that light, but the world remained in darkness. Christ did not leave us comfortless. We have his presence. Finally, we have his spirit. That's understanding where that presence is. Therefore, regardless of the world around us, there is light, there is joy, and there is peace. We live in a very discouraging time. Men are divided. Men are angry. Unbelief is everywhere. Mankind is spiraling into a moral decadence that this culture has not seen since its founding. We are in a Romans 1 culture. A culture where who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but take pleasure in them that do them. But here's what I'd like you to consider. Don't lose your focus. Don't lose your joy. 2,000 years ago, amidst a culture of darkness, a child was born who brought light and joy and hope. Those who knew the identity of this child rejoiced. Not because that ch child would become the next king in Israel over the, over the nation that would overthrow Rome. Not for their sakes, but because this one would bring salvation. They rejoice for every generation. They rejoice for all peoples. And you and I are in one of those generations for which Simeon rejoiced, for which the angels rejoiced. You are a part of all people. You are a part of the, the, the Gentiles unto whom the light of Christ would be brought. The joy that Simeon rejoiced in and Anna rejoiced in that day did not end when Jesus Christ left. It did not end when the gospel was marginalized in the United States. It did not end during the Dark Ages. It did not end in the times of greatest persecution. It did not end in the times of peace. It reaches under the farthest corners of this world. It always has and it will until the day that Jesus Christ himself emanates it from the throne in Jerusalem. 
We are a generation who, regardless of what is happening in the world around us, have the privilege of the light of the presence of the light of life through his spirit, which has been shined into our hearts, who indwells us. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that's, that's the hinge upon which all of this rests as far as peace and joy and comfort, you have within you the Comforter whose task it is to give you joy and peace in the midst of the trouble. A Comforter who is able to overcome the darkness of this world so that it can rightly be said, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Don't allow yourself to walk around fearful and discouraged. Don't allow yourself to wallow in the darkness of this day. The light of life has come. He is alive. He died, but he rose again. He ascended unto the Father. He's at the right hand of God. He knows what's happening, but he's, he's given you a, a comforter. And now it is yours to go out into the world and to call others out of darkness into that light. It is yours to shine that light that is in your heart into the darkness rather than invite the darkness into your light. And so this morning the call is to not lose focus, to not lose joy. Have you become so caught up in the darkness around you that you've forgotten about the light of life? Has the daily bad news and the fears of what it all could mean, I tell you, fathers of young kids, it's a scary thing. Raising our kids in this generation, I don't, I, what are they going to have to face, right? It's a scary thing. What are our grandkids going to have to face? But don't let the possibilities of what this world will do and be and become, it will inevitably come to pass. It will. Don't let it strip you of the joy that is in Christ. On the day of Christ's birth, he brought with him gladness and peace, which has never left, because it's rooted in the gospel. Sung by angels, declared by men, declared by us yet today. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. He lives, and he invites us to live with him forever. He left that peace with us, so let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Let's close in prayer.